0: Please open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Samuel to chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. This evening our study will be on the whole of the chapter. Please do forgive me if I don't uh, look up all that <laughs> often. It's a bit bright in here. Let us read God's Word. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days there was no frequent vision. At the time Eli at that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in his own place or lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel, and Samuel arose and went to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me, of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Please pray with me again. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would... Help us to understand the scriptures, oh, Lord, to glean benefit from the ancient testimony of your calling of the boy Samuel to be a prophet, oh, Lord, to serve your people and to glorify yourself. O oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us, oh, Lord, give us alert minds, Lord, help us to understand spiritual things, oh, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God is sovereign, and he orders all that shall come to pass. All of his creatures and all of their actions are according to his will. And I think from that we have to say, especially if we believe in that sincerely, that the Lord calls all people to all sorts of things. Some people he calls to be teachers... Others he calls to be cooks, some mechanics, others bankers. There are engineers, there are farmers, there are waiters, there are garbage men. And then somewhere after the garbage men, there are preachers. And this evening, we have the call of Samuel to be a prophet of God. To be a man that holds the word of God in mouth as what we would call a plenipotentiary. One who speaks for the Lord, a prophet of God. So the three things I want us to consider from the passage is firstly, the effect of an unfaithful ministry. That's the context within which Samuel is called to be a prophet. The effect of an unfaithful ministry. Secondly, the personal call of Samuel The personal call of Samuel. And then lastly, the heavy task of prophetic ministry. The heavy task of prophetic ministry. And so as we come to chapter 3, verse 1, we are on the heels, naturally, of the end of chapter 2. And it's been some weeks since we were there, and some of you weren't with us when we were there last. But let me remind you of what's there. At the close of chapter 2, we have an unnamed prophet sent by God to, specifically, Eli to prophesy against him and his two sons. And you may remember these worthless men who were priests, just like their father was a priest, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were abusive and unfaithful ministers of the Lord. They were there at Shiloh in what is here called the temple other portions of scripture would would call it a tabernacle or the tent or the tent of God where the Lord is worshipped but this is the location where God's people would come to worship him that's where the ark was it was the central terminus of the spiritual life of the people of Israel and this prophet comes and the word that he has is not a good one against the sons of Eli. In fact, if you look just for a second, you'll see some of this. Verse 27 of chapter 2. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all of the tribes of Israel to be my priest and go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Well, that's a direct charge. There's no question from God, did you do X, Y, or Z? There is the absolute assumption from the sovereign mind of a God who sees everything, you did this and approved of your sons doing it for your own benefit. That's a hard word. That is, as it were, a legal charge against them that the Lord will hold them a great account. Then in verse 31 he goes on and he begins to read off curses. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. That's serious. It's more than a death threat. It's a sentence read against the household of Eli and by extension, against the priesthood of the people of God. And so this is the context with which we come into chapter 3. But I also want to remind you that it's not just a disjointed historical context. It's not just the context of 1 Samuel. This is the context of the end of the period of the judges. And if someone were to ask you, maybe... In a test, how would you describe the theme of the book of Judges in one sentence? How would you do it? Well, you'd probably quote the book of Judges to say it was a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. Right? This description of spiritual apostasy where men don't live by the word of God, they simply live by whatever they want by their own designs, making it up as they go along. The question has been asked, why was the culture of the people of Israel in such a state in the time of the judges? Well, I would submit to you, people didn't live by the word of God because they didn't hear the word of God with frequency because of an unfaithful ministry. The effect of an unfaithful ministry is here related to us against Eli and his two sons. It is this terrible reality that we come to in verse 1 that ought to cause us to take pause. Whenever we read, the word of the Lord was rare in those days, there was no frequent vision. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. This needs a little bit of explanation, doesn't it? A little bit more than to simply say uh, there was an unfaithful ministry. After all, you and I, we have what? We have the word of God, don't we? 66 books, received, holy, and inerrant, preserved throughout all ages. That which is necessary for faith and practice, we have it. But in this day... If there was a written canon, there was very little of the written canon. What do we mean by canon? A group of assembled books, of holy writings. Things that are accepted amongst the people of God to be the word of God. So if there is an assembled Torah or Old Testament of a sort, it's very small. And this is a day and a time where the Lord is ministering to his people along the lines of what we have explained in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. At various times, the Lord spoke to his people in various ways or through various means. This was a verbal or audible fellowship that God had with his people. It's very much akin to the time where Moses is going into and out of the tent and having daily fellowship before the face of God and coming and repeating the word. There was a real vital ministry of prophecy that God had with these people. The prophet would go, have fellowship with the Lord, and then bring the word to them. These works of revelation, visions, as are here described in verse 1, a frequent vision. There was no frequent vision. Uh, the ESV translates this word, in verse 1, rare, that the word was rare in those days. If you're reading from another translation, maybe it's um, King James Version or a, or a related translation, it might say in the English, and the word was precious in those days. And I don't know what the German is. I didn't get to look at it. So if this is redundant, don't pay attention. But the the weight of this word means that it was precious because it was rare. It's like diamonds, why are diamonds valuable? Well, they're valuable because there are not a lot of them. Increasingly today, what is a valuable commodity that uh, we don't that we uh, we call valuable because there's not a lot of it? Oil, especially recently, petroleum products. Well, There is some sense of that. The word was rare. It was precious in those days because it wasn't frequently put to the people of God. And so you come to this and you ask the question, why? Why is God's word rare? Why isn't there a frequent vision? Uh, People might ask the question, is is God quiet? Quiet? Is, is this on the Lord? Is this in His pocket that according to His wisdom and His design, He simply decided to close His mouth to His people? You know, after all we've been studying in the book of Romans, the judgment of God with the retraction of an outpouring of the ministry of grace, right? But what's going on there? Is it God excommunicating the people or the people excommunicating God? It's the latter a people excommunicating God. They'll have nothing to do with him. They don't worship him. They don't expose themselves to the means of grace and the scriptures. Instead, they simply say, we'll not worship you, we'll not honor you, we'll not give thanks to you. And in much the same way, that is something of the occasion, except it's not just lodged in the people, but it's in the priesthood. In an unfaithful priesthood, a priesthood that's rejected the Lord. Why is the word of the Lord rare? Because they are not executing the prophetic ministry. They're not repeating a word from God because they're not spending time with God. It's quite simple. They haven't a vital relationship to the Lord of glory. They're not with Him in prayer. They're not with Him in ministry. Rather, they're doing the work of an un faithful ministry. Things that affirm themselves and affirm and secure their office or their pocket or their enjoyment. They are fattening themselves on the choicest part of every offering. That's what the scripture is against these ministers. Why isn't there a word? Because the ministers are unholy. Hophni and Phinehas are unholy. They're not before the face of God. And so they have little to nothing, almost ever, to say from God to the people of God. Why is this an important thing to touch upon? Because inevitably, when you encounter a church where very little is said regarding the Scriptures, maybe they're read... Maybe the semblance of a formal religion is maintained. After all, Hophni and Phineas, they have the semblance of a formal ministry. Right? People are still going. They're still sacrificing. They're still, in ways, executing the right of religion. However, the people are not fed. And that could be the case from pulpits that don't love the Word of God and don't express the Word of God. But what does it all boil down to? Well, it boils down to a minister that does not spend time with the Lord. That does not spend time with the Lord. It's as simple as that. You know, I think sometimes people want to make it more complicated. Maybe they want to chalk it up to, you know, it's just a denominational thing. Or maybe they're just trying to be culturally relevant and sensitive and, and careful with the way in which they communicate. I just want to say to you, you can communicate the word of the Lord gently and relevantly, yet faithfully. You don't have to close your mouth concerning the things of the word of God, clearly spoken and proclaimed to be a person that is able to communicate about God to people. It makes good sense. If you're going to talk about God, serve Him by preaching and teaching That that will only flow from a life that is lived in private devotion to the Lord. After all, what is chiseled upon the the brow band of the high priest, but the, the phrase, holy to the Lord, who's he concerned with? God. He's God's man in mind and heart and soul, or at least he's supposed to be. And so the effect of an unfaithful ministry, that there's no preaching, there's no teaching, there may be formal religion, but there's no care for the Lord and His truth being delivered to the people of God. And so that's the context of Samuel's call. That's where we pick up in verse 2. And we go forward in a time where the people haven't heard the word from the Lord of heaven. So in verse 2, look there again with me. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Verses 2 and 3 are a wonderful segue I think. Because you have the transition from the cursed sons of Hophni and Phinehas there in chapter 2, who have nothing to say. Verse 2, you have Eli in focus, and then progressing into 3, Samuel is the one in focus. And so when you read commentators on the passage of Scripture and uh, compare Scripture to Scripture, It seems that verses 2 and 3, though they are a literal account, they have symbolic meaning, right? Where's Eli? Well, he's in the temple. But he's an old man. He's old and past his prime. He's lost his eyesight, his capacity to go about and do the things that are necessary for his office. But why is he there? Because his sons aren't there. They're out doing every other thing. We're told that his eyesight had begun to grow dim, that he can't see the light. You know, I don't want to press this too much, but there is some reality to this, that there is a depiction of an old ministry that can't see the light and a new ministry that is mindful of the light. Because what are you told right after, you're, after we're uh, committed that there's a blind Eli? Verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Though there had been an unfaithful ministry, though there had been a blind ministry, and a ministry increasingly so, growing into a less and less faithful ministry, that Eli is going to be brought to account regarding the Lord's lamp that cast light had not yet gone out. The purposes of God had not failed. There's at least thematically a little bit of this. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple near where the ark of God was. Don't pass over that. That is profoundly intentional. You've got the little boy who is the intern of the old pastor. There is a passing Of the baton. There is a transition of office. There is a depiction. But where is Samuel said to be? In the Holy of Holies. Think of the other text of the Old Testament. How do you dress when you go into the Holy of Holies? In high priestly garments with bells around the hem. What's the purpose of the bells? So that if you stop moving. Somebody might pull you by the rope you're wearing around your waist to safety. The ark's dangerous. Just laying a hand on the ark is death. And where's the little boy? Well, it's like he's laying too close to the campfire. He's in dangerous company. He's near the ark of God, but why is he there? It's because he's been ministering to the Lord under Eli. It's the normal place he should be, and that's where the Lord begins to speak and to call Samuel. And so we have the call of Samuel. Verse 4 its the first word of God, an audible calling. The Lord said to Samuel, or the Lord called to Samuel, and Samuel's response is, Here I am. And then again in verse 6, the Lord called Samuel. Like he shouted it loudly, and Samuel rose and went to Eli, here I am with a confusion. And then a third time, verse 8, the Lord calls again. And again and again and again, this audible voice which seems to only be heard by the boy Samuel. Again, we don't know how old he is. This is a word that we translate into English as boy could mean young man, adolescent. Usually means some, some man before he's independent at some age Or a level of life. But nonetheless, the call of the Lord again and again is personal. The first, the Lord calls to him. Samuel responds. Knows immediately that the Lord is calling. The second call in verse 6, Samuel, the name is enunciated. And then here again in verse 8. And then in verse 10, the Lord repeats twice over Samuel. Samuel, trying to grab at his attention. We're told, I think it's uh, yeah, it's in verse 7, why Samuel struggles with this. It's because up until this time in his life, he's been doing the work of ministry. He's been faithful in doing the things that are necessary in the temple for the worship of God. But it says that he did not yet know the Lord. He didn't yet know the Lord. He had an intimate, personal, interactive relationship with the Lord. This sort of audible, prophetic relationship. The face-to-face kind of ministry. Yes, he's been there. He's been faithful. But he didn't know the audible sound of the voice of God. He'd heard the word if it had come to Eli or another at the time. He'd heard it from someone else. But the word of the Lord hadn't been revealed to him. He hadn't begun his prophetic ministry personally. But here it's just indisputable. There is a personal call. Three times over and a fourth. And I just, I love how it is. It's it's personal. It's by name. The Lord knows this man who will be his minister. He knows him. This boy, let me rephrase myself. This boy, he knows him. Why? Because of where he's been. It's a personal call in the heart and the life heard with the ears of, e, of of Samuel. It is a personal calling even if he doesn't quite know what to make of it. There's this first aspect of the calling. It's an internal and personal sense of the Lord's work and call on his life. But then there's a second. Just like we would say today, there's the internal and personal call but then there's also this, this external element. And I don't mean the the verbal sound of the echo of the voice of God. But rather whenever Eli is confused, who does he run to but his mentor? He finds Eli and it's I have so much of a relationship just to some of this experience. Little boy's always coming into my room, daddy, 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 you know, waking me up all the time. You know, and Eli's just going first, what do you what do you want, Samuel? I heard a voice. I just go to bed. Go back and lay down. He comes again, Eli, Eli. Here I am. You called me. What? Are you? I didn't call you. Go lay back down. By the third time coming yet again in the temple, Eli starts to realize he perceives. The text says the Lord was calling the young man. He perceives it, and like a good mentor, he tells him how to respond how to deal with this calling of the Lord. And it's one that he encourages of submission. He says, go lie down, verse 9, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Speak, Lord. Say what you want to me, Lord. I'm listening. This is an instruction to respond to the call of God. I remember years ago whenever I felt an internal sense of call to ministry. I didn't have the echo of a voice. I wasn't camping out in the church and everybody else was gone. It wasn't anything like this. Just a young man pursuing a career in medicine as a pre-medical student. And I kept hearing sermon after sermon after sermon about the way the Lord likes to call young men to himself. And I remember a specific sermon by John Piper that just pressed on my heart. And I'd go home and I'd have these theological conversations with the pastor of my family's church in my hometown, and he's my mentor at this point. And I'm not looking to go into ministry. I just I like him. I like theology. We have spiritual conversations. And I sit, I'm sitting with him one time, and he said, "You know, you know, Nick. Whenever you go back to school, I want you to go back, and I want you to pray about it if the Lord's calling you to ministry." Well, that can't be. Uh, I'm pursuing I'm pursuing medicine. He said, I just want you to go and pray about it. I want you to go and pray whether or not God is calling you to ministry. He's asking me to pray about submitting to God, right? So I come back, been on break, it's Christmas holiday, and I go to church, and we, uh, so yeah, we'll meet together. So we meet together the following Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever it was, and he said, you know, it's good, I'm glad you finished up the semester well, I'm glad your papers went well, I'm glad everything is closed out, but did you do it? Did I do what? I knew what he was talking about. I just didn't want to talk about it. Did you pray? Did you pray if God's calling you to ministry? Yeah, I did pray. But what do you think? Well, I think he is, but I I don't know if I want to submit. The calling of God and the submission of the hearts of God's people. What are we called to? To submit to his will. You know, the ultimate question is, if God calls a man to something, can he resist? Yes. Yes, he can resist. I mean, think about Jonah. What did God call him to do, and how did he resist? I mean, God got his man, he always does. It's almost the carrot and the stick. Do you want to get on the horse or be drugged behind the horse, right? Right? But the calling of God is a calling to submission. And that's what we see here in the ministry of Samuel in the calling that the Lord puts on his life. It's an internal calling, a personal calling, an external calling testified to by a mentor. And so the big question is, what sort of calling has God placed on you? Now, if you hear an audible voice, we're going to have a long conversation. I haven't heard an audible voice. I don't need to hear an audible voice. I have 66 books of the voice of God. I can read it all day long. What has God placed on your life as a calling? Now knowing our church, I have hope that at least one or two, maybe more of the men will be called to ministry. There's one uh, being interned and prepared and educated specifically for that, and other brothers who were studying theology in our church, maybe to ministry for any of those men. We would say not as a prophet like an Old Testament prophet, hearing a word in the recesses of spiritual life, but the prophetic ministry of holding the word of God forward. We hope that that's what the Lord's doing. It's a happy thing. We rejoice whenever the Lord raises up a man. But what if the Lord is simply calling you to submit to his word every single day in the calling you have? As an officer in the military, working with a company as you do, Marcel, in the capacity that you have as a nurse or as a retiree. I mean, any of the calling of God's people, the calling to simply be submissive to God's word in your private life and in the sharing of the hope of the gospel to other people. It's just submission. Submission. I mean, God may want you to be the very best street sweeper in the world that simply bears his word forward, a word of hope and grace. You're called a submission. The Lord can make very, very, very much of faithful store owners and even garbage men. If he can make use of a preacher, I'm pretty sure he can make use of anyone. Will you submit to the call of God. That's the question. It's a question of submission. And all Christians are certainly called to the sharing of the gospel to the nations. We have for us the Great Commission as an evidence of that. And then finally, in the passage, I want to touch upon the difficult task of ministry. The difficult task of prophetic ministry, if I will. And I do want to say that, you know, here, in the context, it's Samuel's calling to bear up the word as a prophet that has contained with it not only a man that speaks forth the word, but then applies the word. It's a larger impact. It's a right thing to think of the Old Testament prophets, whether it's the first great prophet in Samuel, or the major prophets or minor prophets in the prophetic books. They were preachers as well as forth tellers. This is what they do. They're taking God's word and applying it to the hearts of God's people so that they will be convicted and then turn in repentance. Just go read any of the books and you'll see it. It's not often that the foretelling or the future tense is the ultimate focus. In fact, those future tenses are only enumerated to get God's people to act differently, to repent, to live life after the Lord. So they're preachers. It's exciting. It's a happy occasion. People really sometimes celebrate the occasion of a man being called to ministry. My family didn't know what to make of it. My mother pleaded with me not to do it because she'd been in a church where ministers were not treated well. They asked me the question, did you fail out of your pre-medical focus? And that wasn't the case. I was a good student. Lots of questions. Are you stable? Are you doing okay? This is a significant shift. But I have friends that whenever they submitted to the call of ministry, the whole church had a a banquet. But the reality of ministry is soon established in the preaching and the regular work of the word of God. And it's because of this, if a man will be faithful in ministry, it will mean inevitably saying difficult things to people. He will have to speak the truth into crisis, the truth into unfaithfulness, the truth into sin, and get in people's business. And you see that right here in the text. What's the message that Samuel is told to speak? Why is God calling him? Well, he calls him specifically so that he can receive the word in verse 11 and then speak that word to Eli, Eli. In verse 17, and this is the word. Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which two ears, the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. He's saying everybody's going to want to hear this. It's going to be like the shot heard around the world. It's going to be the thing that all God's people know. That's what he's saying. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken. In chapter 2. From the unnamed prophet. Concerning his house from beginning to end. All of that destruction. All of that hard judgment. That's coming. And I declare to him. Again this is directly at Eli. And I declare to him. That I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God. And he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. That's the first word he's given. And he's given it to then speak forth the word of God to a man that's like a father to him. That's hard. It's a hard task. It's difficult. It's a difficult truth, but it's the Word of God. And I want you to see how he deals with this. Verse 15. We're told that Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He didn't sleep all that night. I can relate to this. Having to speak a hard sermon today. It's simply read hard truths, not getting sleep, knowing that you will speak, knowing that you're going to say the thing that the Lord has put in his word, knowing that it's going to be a thing that hits the ears, the minds, and the hearts that people struggle with. Samuel struggled with it. He had a heavy task. But in the morning, he opened the doors to the house of the Lord. He didn't shut himself in. Again, he is a man who will submit to God and do what he's been called to. But we're also told this: that Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. He was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Imagine that. A scared preacher. It's a terrible task. Because you know what he was doing was proclaiming a judgment of condemnation and damnation against somebody that he loved. Well, we go on and we see the interaction. Eli comes and calls to Samuel and says to him, Samuel, my son, Samuel says, here am I. Eli said, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. And then Eli repeats a curse back to him. He says to him, you tell me what the Lord said, or may God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So, what does he do? He tells him. He preaches the hard word, the difficult word, the word that came from God without omitting anything, even though he knew it would be very painful for his hearer. That's the difficult task of ministry. Speaking the word for somebody else, being the messenger of the God of heaven, and hoping simply that they don't kill the messenger. But the prophets of God have always experienced this. If you're speaking for God, you're speaking a perfect word to an imperfect creature. A word that confronts, that doesn't affirm, a word that calls to repentance, that condemns if no repentance will be had and which offers immense grace if a man, woman, or child will turn. Jeremiah was thrown in a well and later stoned to death. Isaiah martyred by being sawn in half. Ezekiel martyred by the Chaldeans who were famous for being creative with the way in which they would kill people. Amos was tortured by Amaziah, a false priest, and then martyred before the people of Israel. Jesus was hung on a cross. Stephen was stoned. Paul was beaten and stoned. Peter hung upside down on a cross. Polycarp, martyred in a variety of ways that if you were to read the account, it would shock you. Athanasius exiled three times to the point where he was living in the tomb of his own father, John Huss was burned for preaching the gospel. The Huguenots, the French Calvinists, had their tongues cut out so they could not speak the gospel and so they couldn't even sing the psalms, yet they hummed them as they burned to death. Latimer and Ridley burned for preaching the gospel and lit a fire in England that we hope and trust has not yet gone out even to this day. John Roger, the Puritan, was martyred Because he taught a clear doctrine of the Lord's Supper. It's a difficult task. And so, where does this go and what's the application? Pray for your preacher, pray for ministers, pray for anybody that has the heavy call to simply submit to God and to open his word and to read it and teach it without apology. Pray for us. Pray for those that are in your own church. Pray for those outside of the church, or not outside of the church, outside of our own congregation. You understand what I mean? Pray that the Lord would raise up men that would simply be bold in the proclamation of truth and pray for those in our church who will be evangelists and who will hold forth the word of the gospel to any who would hear and believe. Pray. Pray. And so with that, let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we could come again, that we could worship together. That, Lord, we could come once more to your table to be fed by the scriptures. Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who would submit to your call in our lives. Oh, Lord, that we would rejoice in being Christians that have a message to be spoken to a world that's hostile to it. Father in heaven, we pray that you would raise up young boys to be ministers in our church, that, Lord, you would stir the men in our church to be uh, those who would consider their own calling and how they might tell forward the truth of the gospel, that the women also might be stirred to tell the gospel to others. Lord, use your people and help us to be submissive to your word and your calling on our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.